Look with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter 4, and there are some key phrases that are going to help us mark our way through this text. 1 Peter 4, we're going to call it 1C, the latter part of verse 1. Last week, we only looked at the first two parts of verse 1. Uh, I thought for sure that we would get further, but uh, we did not. And the Lord has seen fit, even as I had planned it this way, that we might um, be dealing with the text that addresses the resurrection from a standpoint that you may not consider, but it is here in the text, this Resurrection Sunday. We're going to talk about cease from sin and what does that mean? How do we understand Peter's statement in verse 1? It's clear that Peter tells us that we are to no longer live our lives for the lust of men, but now for the will of God. Also, that Peter makes a very dramatic statement where he says that it is enough time with sin. You've sinned enough, now live for the Lord. There is also comfort that we're going to learn in this text for those that would malign us and that malign the believers in Asia Minor, that God is the ultimate judge and God will judge revenge, vengeance is the Lord. And then there is this reality of the life-giving gospel. In that life-giving gospel, that's where we have the hope of resurrection. Now, this is also obviously a lesson, a passage that's dealing with suffering. And it will continue to give a perspective on suffering. When we suffer for the faith, as believers in Asia Minor suffered for their faith, But it's also beneficial when it's addressing uh, real suffering in life. Uh, The question comes up, you know, what is real suffering? Well, well, from last week you learned that uh, I gave one example of what suffering is not. Uh, Some of the inconveniences that we face in life really aren't even worthy to be mentioned in the same conversation with what believers have faced through the centuries. I mean, think about it for a moment. Some of the things that we say are suffering and, and you know, that I mentioned being stuck in traffic. And I've heard people say, you know, suffering as we're stuck on the four or five. And I thought about that for a moment. Is that really worthy of consideration? Can you even mention that in light of what our brothers and sisters have faced through the centuries and what people face today? I mean, think about it for a moment. It's, it's just utterly ridiculous. There you are on the four or five with your air conditioning on. Right, with your Bluetooth working, and you're saying to Siri, Siri, find me the nearest restaurant, right? Oh, that's suffering, isn't it? Not really, not at all. But there is also a suffering that is not for our faith. That is, there is suffering for the faith, which we see here in First Peter, and obviously throughout history, history, but there is a suffering that may come, and it's not because we are Christians, and, and this message and these messages will help us gain a perspective on that as well. There's suffering that may come by a person that sees their loved one murdered. There's suffering that may occur when the doctor calls and the news is what one wasn't expecting or hoping to hear. There is suffering that may be for just tragedy that hits us. And there's a great loss of life or the great loss of property. One may say, well, property comes and goes. Why would that be suffering? But yet if one has invested their time and their life and their effort into it, 
there is a certain degree of suffering. We can't say of Job when he suffered the loss of all of his property, well, that was nothing. The only thing that he really suffered was simply the loss of his loved ones. No, that was suffering as well. Suffering is not for our faith would include a, a story that I even read recently, and it just uh, churned at my heart, if you will. And I read of parents who had been sentenced to life in prison with perhaps the possibility for parole in 25 years, and I'm not even sure why they would give them the possibility uh, of such wicked people who, you may have read the story, who tortured their children, 12 children, tortured them for years. A horrible story. And now some of the children, uh, they're facing all sorts of physical complications, having been chained in, in one place even for o- over a year at a time. Two of their girls now unable to, to have children because of the complications. Imagine the emotional pain that those children are going to suffer. That this was done by my parents, someone that should have cared for me, that should have been my protector, that should have watched out for me. That's suffering. That's real. See, this passage helps us think through these things, not only for ourselves, but but maybe it's someone else that we know. And so we can take them to the word of God and we can bring them comfort as well. And this is also a message, as any message, when we can learn something about the example of Jesus Christ. is always a joy in that, isn't it? We can learn about Jesus Christ and his example, so that's a benefit. This is a message that tells us about God's will, and, and in this message we see how we can learn from God's will generally. And I would say this, we are often striving to know God's will specifically, the the specifics of what is the next step in life and what do I do in life. But first, we must understand God's will generally before we can understand it specifically. That is, what is it God wants for me as a Christian, as a believer? Before I ask about education or my future or what is next in life, I need to be doing the things that I know to be true that are clearly revealed in Scripture. But sometimes what happens with people is this. They're looking for the specifics without following the general. That is, God says, you should be holy for I am what? Holy, that is God's will. But they're looking for some specific in life, but they're not striving for holiness in life. So we have to start there. But this message also ends with a great deal of hope a sense of hope. And this hope is only possible because of what Jesus Christ said when he uttered those words, it is finished. And this is also a message of hope because of whatever he said when he raised himself again from the dead. It gives us hope. And I think we would all agree that everyone needs hope, do they not? They do. We have to offer them a hope, and that hope is found in a person. That hope is found in God's word. And I'm hoping that this morning, if you will, you will walk away more encouraged as you understand God's perspective about life and difficulty and heartache and living for the Lord and how God is on your side. And if God is on your side, then it doesn't matter who is against you because it has been said, when God is on your side, you are always in the majority. Amen. Amen. I want us to look at this passage and and read it. Follow with me. Peter writes, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, 
because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality and lust and drunkenness and carousing and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. And all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. A wonderful passage. And let me give you an overview of, as I considered last week, where we're going with the entire passage. And it breaks down this way. The example of Christ calls us to a new life. And we see that in verses 1 and 6. And what we're going to address this morning is, as I said, is really diving back into that first point, the example that leads us to God's will. And we're going to dive in at verse 1c. And then we're going to look at his example leads us to new choices in life. And then end by knowing that his example leads us to gospel purpose, verses 5 and 6. And then starting next week, we're going to look at the next section, which is the eschaton of Christ calls us to a new life. That is this ending of all things, and Christ is in absolute control of that. And when we understand that we are living in the time in which the imminent return of Christ that we live differently. And next week, we're going to look at verse 7 and how, because the end of all things is near, that we should be sober even for the purpose of prayer. But let's dive in into this section. And I want us to continue to understand some truths that we find in verse 1 through 6. They're actually, as it unfolds under these headings, they're going to be six truths that we'll identify as we go through the text. And you'll see it. I have the outline for you. The example of Christ calls us to a new life, verses 1 through 6. We've already learned that Christ's death is the motivation. We see that in 1a. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh. And this picks up the thought from chapter 3, verse 18. Notice there again, chapter 3, 18. For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So now what does Peter do? He picks up the thought from chapter 3, verse 18, and he says, now look to that example. Jesus Christ is the motivation for this new life. He suffered, you will suffer. He faced hardship, you will face hardship. He was maligned, you will be maligned. But look at his example and consider how he responded. And so you must respond the same way. Follow in his steps. But Christ's death requires a response as well. And that's the response that we see in verse 1b. Arm yourselves also with the same purpose. That is with the same mindset, the same mentality, the same attitude, the same resolve. We must be resolved to live like the Lord. The example is set before us, and now we're to be emulators of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
but he uses his language, arm yourselves like a soldier as you're in this spiritual battle and make sure that you're not trying to fight this battle with one's own resolve. You say, wait a minute, you just said resolve, but it is not your own resolve. It is a resolve that's emulating the Lord Jesus Christ. It is looking to his example and saying, I will follow that. I cannot conjure this up myself. It must be something that is driven and given by the power of the Holy Spirit that will allow me to respond to a person that is persecuting me with Christ-like behavior. Because the initial response is tick for tack, is it not? Word for word, strike for strike, but not with Christ. So we must be a people who are armed for this battle. Now, this pick up in verse 1c, Christ's death provides a rationale. It provides a rationale. What do we mean by that? Notice what it says in the latter part of verse 1. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Notice what he says, because. So what this does, this provides the explanation of the resolve. If you're supposed to be resolved with the same attitude as you're armed, on what basis do I arm myself? And Paul, that is, Peter gives us the basis here, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Therefore, you must arm yourselves. And now, there are some different views on what it says here, he who has suffered in the flesh. There are actually three possibilities. Um, there's one that's viable, but I give them to you nonetheless. Some would say that, number one, it's Christ who has suffered in the flesh. And when it says cease from sin, that is, he's paid the price for sin, he's done away with sin. Or some would say, well, there's a problem interpreting that way because that's a bit of conjecture here. So it does mean cease from sin. That is the battle with sin. And we know Christ had no personal battle with sin. He was tempted, yet he was what? Without sin. So they would say, well, what happens here? Peter introduces this parenthetical statement. So he's saying, yes, Christ has suffered in the flesh and the cease from sin doesn't have to do with Christ. It has to do with us. That really is a problem. Secondly, some would say, well, it's Christians. They've ceased from sin, but it's referring to Christians um, in a different manner. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. So Christians who suffered in the flesh refers to believers, obviously, but it's understood in a way that's similar to Romans 6 and 7. Look at Romans 6 and 7, and it says there, we'll look at verse 6 of Romans 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. And they say, well, it's in reference to this idea that's captured in Romans 6-7, that we're free from sin. That's what he means by suffering in the flesh. Our third, it would be this, and this is the position I would take. It's believers who have broken with the power of sin, and now they face persecution because their lies indict those around them. And that fits the context because we're going to notice in a moment that they malign you because you no longer walk with them. 
So when he says those who have suffered in the flesh, it is we have now broken with the power of sin. We have died with Christ. And because now that has happened, our lives are different and our lives indict those around us. Christ's death also gives us this. Christ's death gives us purpose. Christ's death gives us purpose. Notice verse 2. Notice what is communicated in verse 2. This idea of purpose. In verse 2, Peter writes, So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Well, what is this purpose? This purpose is simply to follow the will of the Lord. When it says the rest of the time, uh, this has to be viewed really through verse 7. Notice verse 7. As I said, there's going to be a shift in the passage. Notice verse 7. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Christ is coming again. So the question is now, how do we live our lives? Do we live them for the lust of men or do we live them for the will of God? It's sometimes sad how Christians now that we have become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ don't always have the same passion that we had when we were in the world. And what do I mean by that? Uh, when one was in the world, there's a pack would have been some of us, not all of us. And hopefully it's even few of us that we live with a passion for the things of the world. We found out ways to sin. And now we become a believer and we can lose some of that passion. Now a passion that was given to time and effort and devices, now those efforts and time and resources should be given to the Lord, but we don't strive as diligently as we did then. Now, said differently, why is it that some people, when they were in the world, they were had a reputation for being worldly. But now that they are in Christ, their reputation for being in Christ isn't as prominent. Do you understand what I'm saying? That is, when a person comes to the Lord, uh, their reputation should be now. Something has changed in the most dramatical way about them. They used to be the person that was out late and doing all sorts of things. And now they've changed in such a radical way, it is clearly evident that God has done something in their heart. He wants us to understand this. Live the rest of your time. I think all of us would agree with this, that um, time can be a cruel instructor. And what do I mean by that? Time can be a cruel instructor in that it waits for no one, does it? And we're supposed to use it wisely. That's Ephesians 5.16. It tells us to walk wisely, not as being unwise, but wise. Colossians 4 and 5 tells us that we're supposed to take advantage of all the opportunities around us as we're walking wisely with the Lord. But we wake up one day and life has gone by. We wake up one day and all of a sudden there are gray hairs on our head. When did that happen? It was overnight, an overnight phenomenon, right? We go to sleep and we wake up this way. No, it doesn't. But it may seem that way. Because we're not taking full advantage of the time that the Lord has given us. You know, some of you, you got, you got our um, little family card and I 
see my kids and you, the section that I wrote, you know you're in a different stage in life where now you're having to write the section for your kids. It used to be we would sit them down and we'd ask them to write a paragraph about your life and they'd give perspective about school. And it, it started when they were pretty young singing out this little Easter letter. And they'd talk about grade school, and it was talking about football. They were talking about piano lessons, and, and then they were talking about high school. And now three of them, we have to write it for them because they've moved on. Life is different. You say, when did that happen? I was with my, one of my kids just the other day. We were out doing some shopping. We were in Trader Joe's, and I saw this couple, and a young couple, um, and they had three kids, and and the young lady, she had some, it's like a holster here with one on the front and one in the back. <laughs> wow. And, the, and the, the, the dad had one in his arms. He was, he was actually two. And I saw them. I stopped and I said, oh, wow, this brings back memories. <laughs> I said, I wish they would have had that when we, were, when we had our twins. Like, wow, put one here, put one in the back. This, and she was just shopping with the kids, you know, here, bam, <laughs> I said, this is great. It brought back memories. And I talked to them for a bit, and I said, how old are they apart? I'll say two years. I said, I remember it because I had a, a daughter. Then 14 months later, there were the twin boys. And I said, I remember it. It's like we had the Hargrove landfill for all the pampers that we used up. <laughs> it was that way. And we talked about it and asked about their ages and their names. And I just thought, wow, look at it now. And someone reminded me that I'm now, I've, I've been downgraded. I'm the third tallest in the family now. <laughs> because my boys are taller than me. So we go from this to that. <laughs> Time is going by, is it not? And the question for us is, will you take advantage of that time that the Lord has given you? Peter says here, clearly, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Peter has this style as well, not this, but that. Notice it. And I wanted to see you several examples of it in Peter. Go back with me to chapter one. And I just want you to see this style with Peter. In verse 12, what does he say? It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. So they weren't serving themselves, but you. Notice verse 14 and 15. Again, this contrast. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your what? What does it say? Ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you. Be holy also in all your behavior. So it is clear, what does Peter say? You live that way in the past, but now live this way. Notice verse 18. He says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. Again, notice verse 23. You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but what does it say? But imperishable. Notice chapter 218, this style continues throughout. 218, servants be submissive, submissive to your masters 
with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Notice verse 20. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. You see this same style in chapter 2, 23. I won't go through them all. Chapter 4, 15, and 16. You see it later there. Let's look at that example. He says, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in that name. So this is what he's saying. No longer for the lust of men, but God. No longer in your ignorance, but now holy. Not just those that are reasonable, but even those that are unreasonable. I mean, everyday life presents us with choices, does it not? I mean, there are choices for us to make decisions to things that are good and evil, faith and doubt. There's a choice that one can make, uh, a choice about holding to one's convictions or compromising. And the example of Christ is forever in front of us. So he says, the will of God. Well, The will of God in what? Don't return evil for evil, the will of God. Do show humility, the will of God. Live with understanding, Peter would say, even to husbands, live with your wife according to knowledge. Understand her. Then he says to wives, the will of God, um, don't let your uh, life be only the things that are external, but let it be the um, chasteness of one's heart and not preaching at your husband, thinking that you're going to preach him into the kingdom. Wives, submit. Children, obey. Abstain from immorality. This is the will of God. But there's something else we need to learn. Notice chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. His example leads us to new choices. And it's really has been set up by what he communicates here in verse 2. So we're to live our lives not for men, but for the will of God. And then we can learn this, Christ's death motivates us to forsake sin. Christ's death motivates us to forsake sin. Notice this, if you will, in verse 3. What does it say? For the time past, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. And the, the different translations don't differ a great deal. The ESV says, The time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. The New King James says this, We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. The King James reads this way, The the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. And the NIV says, You have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. The language is very direct. Enough with sin. You had your time in it. And now the time is to live for the Lord. But Peter's language here is is pretty definitive. I mean, the definitive nature of Peter's expectations is captured, if you look at verse 3 with me, he uses these three perfect tense verbs, saying, notice what he says, already passed. Then he says, carried out. Then he says, having pursued. So 
here is this line that now you've crossed over it when you came to the Lord. Make sure that you don't go back is what he's communicating. Here is this line of demarcation, if you will, that says, now my life has changed in the most dramatic way. Allow this decision that I made to come to Christ, God's choosing of me to be lived out for the rest of my life. And the question is, why would we want to go back anyway? What does the world offer us? Now, if one is honest, because I think the writer Hebrews is honest, he says um, of Moses that he forsook the passing pleasures of sin. And I, and I like the honesty of that statement because there is a degree of pleasure derived by the flesh from sin, is it not? But the question is, it is something that is passing. And what happens when it comes to sin is this. It never tells you the consequences. Or at least we convince ourselves that we won't face the consequences. How many times do we hear a story, read some example of a person that has made some choice and you wonder, and we often say to ourselves, what were they, what, what do we say? Finish that. Thinking. What were they thinking? What were they thinking? What were you thinking when you paid for that with a credit card? What were you thinking? Did you not think that that could be found out? What were you thinking when you decided to look at that on your job? What were you thinking when you started that relationship with that person and you started to have communication with them that was entirely too intimate for someone that's not your spouse? What were you thinking? Uh, generally, it's not thought. It's feeling. It's in the moment. And Peter says, you've escaped it. But notice some of the things that he says you've escaped. The desire of the Gentiles. And here it's just another way to communicate of those that are outside the faith. Because if Paul, that is Peter, is addressing those who would be ethnically Gentiles, the question is why would he say the desire of the Gentiles? Because he's identifying them now with God's chosen people. And he says here the Gentiles represent those people who are living without God. Now, he's not saying that they can live with perfection. We all are striving. We're all striving to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, the statement remains, it's sufficient for you to have lived that way. Enough is enough. And what are some of the ways in which he says you put away? Sensuality. That is, it's the idea of unbridled, ungodly living, uh, following even wanton pleasures is the word. And then he says not only that, but lust or, or passion. Although the word is broad and often it can refer to any sin that is manifest by human fallenness, in context, it's going to refer to the lust in the area of sexual sin. One looks up and we see uh, sad stories of men uh, in the church, that is, who have fallen to sexual sin. You wonder, how did that happen? When did that begin? One looks at the statistics when it comes to even pornography, not in just the marketplace of life, but the use of pornography in the church. How does this begin? And sometimes it begins with an initial lust that says, I won't go any further than this, and one goes further than that, and it 
it's this horrible snowball effect. What else does he say? Um, drunkenness or drinking parties, habitual drinking. And then this next word, carousing. What does it mean? Interesting, this word initially had this idea of friends that would accompany another friend who was a victor in one of the games. And they would um, take him back to his home singing the person's praises. Imagine that. So if, um, say, for instance, if George Sanders had won the triathlon, and what we're going to do is we would be going back to his home in Thousand Oaks, George the Greatest, what a wonderful victor he is. George the Greatest, what a wonderful victor he is. I'm glad that he is my friend. And nothing harmful in it. That's what the word initially meant. But like many words, human debauchery takes over. And then what happened after that? It became, let's go out and party, and we go through the streets, and we're drinking. And now there's, that's why some translations would um, have reveling. You're a reveler. And that's what it means. You're sort of going through the streets, you're drinking, you're loud, you're disturbing people, you're with your buddies, and you're just having a good old time, so you think. Have you ever seen that before? I want to ask, have you done it before? <laughs> of course not, just only through YouTube, right? And I've seen that before. I remember some of my high school days, high school days, sorry, college days, um, some of my buddies and going out and... And there they were. God protected me from some foolishness. I had other issues, but it wasn't that. For me, drinking was dumb. I just, I couldn't understand it. I mean, as an athlete, why would I want to do that? It doesn't taste good. And guys would say, well, you can acquire a taste. So I can acquire a taste for mud as well if I, I ate it long enough. This makes no sense whatsoever. So for me, it wasn't so much this sort of moral fiber. It was just common sense. It was very practical. Why would I get drunk? That makes no sense. But I saw my guys, my buddies, and they were doing it. They'd go around campus. They're drunk, and they're, they're making loud noises, and the security has to come and take them away. What Peter's saying, some of you used to live that way. You were revelers is what you were. And what's interesting about this word, um, it would be associated with the cult of Dionysus. And who is Dionysus? Or the Greek is Bacchus. The god of, who knows it, god of wine, or the even religious ecstasy, as he would be referred to. And so these cults would be known for drinking, and it, there was a sense in which their religious expression was uh, exemplified by how drunk they would be. That used to be your life. Enough of that life is what Peter says. Now live for God in the time that is left, because time is waiting on no man. And then, of course, he just plainly states here, drinking or drinking parties. And, and then the idea, he says here, abominable idolatries, which captures any sense in which anything that is done apart from recognizing the true God. Notice what else he says in verse 4. And all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same accesses of dissipation, and they malign you. So what we might notice here is Christ's death prepares us for persecution. Christ's death prepares us for persecution. They're going to malign you. 
And notice what he says, accesses of dissipation. And um, the access to, to be extreme. The word was used of rock pools that would be filled when the high tide had come in. It was recently I saw an example of it. I was at some of the seminary students at Refugio State Beach, you know, north of Santa Barbara. And when I got there, it was low tide. And it was interesting going out and seeing some of the rock formations. And you could see when the high tide comes in, these pools had been filled with water. Because when the high tide comes in, what there's this overflow of water that comes closer to uh, the shoreline, if you will. So it says it's the access of dissipation. That is, being uncontrolled, you don't live with them and they malign you for it, or they blaspheme you for it. So why is the example of Christ important? Because Jesus Christ was blaspheming. Imagine that, the Son of God. You do the things that you do by the devil. Imagine that, the Son of God. You were born entirely of fornication. Imagine that, the Son of God. This says he is a madman. Jesus Christ was blaspheming, but yet, he did not revile in return. Um, what some with malign may give way. They say, I don't, I'm not prepared for this persecution. Would you agree that um, so much of what we battle in the Christian life, um, the battle is where? Where is that battle? Where is it taking place? In the mind. And this is why Paul would say, be renewed in the spirit of your, the scripture tells us that we have, can have the mind of Christ. Um, so make sure that we are sober and living properly. How many of you are, would say, I really uh, would like to be done with sin? Amen. I mean, to live a life that is free from the emotional, psychological pain caused by sin. Its effect on self, its effect on others, its effect, most importantly, on God. When I say on God, what do I mean? Ephesians 4.30, that we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. The enemy is fighting against us. It, it wants to turn our minds away from the things of the Lord. Psychological warfare happens. We are engaged in a battle. Listen to this. Um, psychological warfare, also called war, the use of propaganda against an enemy, supported by such military, economic, or political measures as may be required. Such propaganda is generally intended to demoralize the enemy, to break his will to fight or resist, and sometimes to render him favorably disposed to one's position. Propaganda is also used to strengthen the resolve of, of allies or resistance fighters. The twisting of personality and the manipulation of belief in prisoners of war by brainwashing and related techniques can also be regarded as a form of psychological warfare. Although often looked upon as a modern invention, psychological warfare has an ancient origin. Cyrus the Great employed it against Babylon, Xerxes against the Greeks, 
Philip II of Macedon against the Athenians. The conquest of Genghis Khan actually was aided by, they spread rumors that there were these ferocious Mongol horsemen all over the lands. And so they thought, we better relent. It's in the mind. The enemy is fighting against us and want us, wants us to think in ways that we should not. And this is why, if you look with me, chapter 1, 1 Peter. Why Peter says early in his text this. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So prepare your minds for action. Why? Because you're engaged in a spiritual battle. Here's another consideration under this heading. His example leads us to gospel purpose. Verse 5, go back to 1 Peter 4, verse 5. Christ's death and resurrection assure our vindication. It will assure our vindication. Notice verse 5. So they malign you, but verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Notice the strong contrast. Yes, they are maligning you in verse 4, but verse 5, but hold on. It may at times seem bleak. Uh, Those that were at one point in time, maybe even your loved ones, those that were your friends, they are maligning you now because you don't want to live the life that you formerly lived, but they have judged you. However, they will be judged by the only one to whom it really matters. He's the ultimate judge. And again, as said earlier, if God is on our side, then we are always in the majority, are we not? And here is the statement of encouragement for believers because Jesus' death and resurrection will assure our vindication before him and even before men. It's the thought of Romans 8. If he is for us, then it doesn't matter who is against us. It's a statement of Jesus Christ's authority as well. Not only of mankind, but it's a statement of his authority over these other so-called gods. They will be judged as well. Christ's death, notice this in verse 6. Christ's death and resurrection assure our resurrection. They assure our resurrection. Notice verse 6. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. There are four questions we need to ask about this verse. First, what is the purpose? When was it preached? To whom was it preached? And what is its effect? First, what is its purpose? The purpose of the gospel preaching is obvious. It's So God's working of his eternal plan of salvation would unfold. It's the redemptive narrative that will glorify God. But when was it preached? It was preached following the Great Commission and then Pentecost. But it gets a little tricky with some um, commentators. To whom was it preached? There's some views that say, well, when it says it was preached even to those who are dead, Dead in what way? Some would say, well, it's referring to those who are spiritually dead, even right now. But um, that doesn't fit the context well, because if you notice in verse 5, it says, 
Jesus Christ is going to be the judge of the living and the dead. And so when he uses dead again, it's going to be best that we understand it in a literal sense, not make it a spiritual sense now. Some would say, well, uh, the gospel is preached to those between Christ's death and his resurrection. Go back to chapter 3, verse 19. Chapter 3, 19. It says there, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So it's Christ proclaiming between his death and resurrection to the spirits now in prison. Some will say, well, it's connected with 319. That's what it's talking about. But the problem with that is if we understand 319 properly, Christ, when he preached the spirits now in prison, it is not talking about people having an opportunity to be saved. I don't even think it's talking about Old Testament saints, simply a declaration to them. It is saying it's the spirits that are in prison. He is making a declaration of his triumph over death and over the enemy. Those that are confined, demonic powers. It is a proclamation, not a gospel presentation. There is a difference in the wording. So we would say that that is not the best position. Some, of course, on an extreme would say, yes, the gospel is preached to those who are dead so that now they can have a chance to be saved. But there's all sorts of problems with that, what, theologically, right? So we totally discard that. What is the best position? It's the gospel that was preached to those who responded, but now they are dead. That is, the gospel was preached. They came to faith in Christ, and now they are dead, literally. They have died in the Lord. And now, he says, this life-giving gospel has an effect. What is the effect? The effect is this, renewed life. Renewed life. It says, though they are judged in the flesh as men, that is, when they were alive, men judged them, and they may even judge them now that they're dead. You say, how does that make sense? Think with me for a moment. Um, okay, here's an example. Let's just take our pastor, John MacArthur. Um, <clears throat> has he, has, have people in the world criticized him for his message and his approach to the Bible? Yes, they have. Has he been maligned for it? Has he been judged by men for it? Okay, when he dies, will that stop? No, it will not. It will continue. So they would have been judged even in life, and they're going to be judged even after life. There may be people that you know right now, they judge you for your position, what you hold to. And then when you die, they're going to continue to judge you. Look, I don't believe what he said. And this is particularly important when it comes to the pagan religions of the world. It was an indictment against them because it was also saying this. They would say, look, your religion really doesn't make a difference. They died anyway. What does this talk about life, eternal life? And if you come to me and eat the bread of life, what is this conversation that you're having and you're trying to convince one another if you follow this poor carpenter who was killed by the Romans that somehow you're going to have eternal life? I've been to the graves of you who say you are Christians. Your bodies are there. You're dead. Where is this eternal life? And they would have been indicting Christians even after death. And Peter is saying, no, those of you who believe the gospel, you will come to faith. And although you were judged according to man's standards then, and you may be judged now, your death is even 
an indictment against them because you now live in Christ. And we can only live in Christ because Christ is alive. Amen. (laughs) Without any resurrection, then this statement is not true. Here's the assurance of resurrected life. Because now, in verse 6, that they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. I have a final thought for you. The churches of Asia Minor endured great persecution under Nero, which is the first of ten noted persecutions of Christians. But actually, the tenth persecution um, under Diocletian was the worst. It was the worst, actually. And it would have taken place beginning 303. Let me read something from Fox's Book of Martyrs. No distinction was made of age or sex. The name of Christian was so obnoxious to the pagans that all indiscriminately fell sacrifices to their opinions. Many houses were set on fire and whole Christian families perished in the flames and others had stones fastened about their necks and being tied together were driven into the sea. The persecution became general in all the Roman provinces but more particularly in the East, as it lasted 10 years. It is impossible to ascertain the numbers martyred or to enumerate the various modes of martyrdom. Racks, scourges, swords, daggers, crosses, poison, and famine were made use of in various parts to dispatch the Christians. An invention was exhausted to devise tortures against such as had no crime, but thinking differently in their belief. A city of Apergia, consisting entirely of Christians, was burnt, and all the inhabitants perished in the flames. Tired with the slaughter, at length several governors of provinces represented to the imperial court the impropriety of such conduct. Hence, many were respited from execution. But, though they were not put to death, as much as possible was done to render their lives miserable. Many of them having their ears cut off, their noses slit, their right eyes put out, their limbs rendered useless by dreadful dislocations, and their flesh seared in places with red heart irons. North Korea, about 300,000 perhaps believers of 26 million people. If Christians are discovered, not only are they deported to labor camps as political criminals or even killed on the spot, their families will share their fate as well. Christians do not even have the slightest space in society. On contrary, they're publicly warned against. Meeting other Christians in order to worship is almost impossible. And if some believers dare to, it is to be done in utmost secrecy. The church is shown to visitors in Pyong serve mere propaganda purposes. I talked to you last week about Nigeria. 900 churches burned by radicals. 800 since 2016 Christians and what are called moderate Muslims murdered. 
Even this morning, the story of what happened in Sri Lanka, six bombs that went off, three in hotels and three in churches. At this point, as I read this morning, 207 people dead. But what happens? See, the pagans of the day would have said, look, Jesus Christ, you're claiming that he is God in human flesh and he can't even protect you from this? Jesus Christ, to whom you say gives you eternal life, I've visited your graves, you are dead. But let's turn to Acts chapter 7. I love this episode. What does Stephen have to do with believers today and through history? What does Stephen have to do with the believers that were killed during this time under Nero and Diocletian and in North Korea and in Nigeria and other places that are almost nameless? Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, verse 54 of Acts 7, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man called Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, what did he say? Say it with me. Receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Having said this, he fell asleep. But he only fell asleep. (laughs) And because Jesus Christ was at the right hand of God, Stephen will rise again. Amen. (laughs) He was maligned to the nth degree. His life was taken. But yet in his death, there was life. And you you cannot miss this picture of Jesus Christ. Where is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God. That is a statement of his full acceptance by God the Father. Because having now been the purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty. And Jesus Christ, and you also should note this, Jesus Christ is standing. So why is he standing? So many other references actually all but this Uh, refer to him sitting at the right hand of God, Jesus Christ standing, and I believe he is standing to receive Stephen, but he is also standing as an act of judgment against those who would take his life. So he stands to receive Stephen, and he stands to say, you are judged, his blood you will give an account. Oh my. So Peter can say to the churches of Asia Minor, don't run with them anymore. They will malign you. But remember this. They will give an account to the one who will judge the living and the dead. The gospel has been preached for this purpose. that Although you were judged by men, you can be made alive in the spirit according to the will of God. This life is yours because Christ is risen from the dead. Be like Christ. 
Be like Christ. Father, we thank you for these words you give us. I pray that they would encourage our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.